like to imagine a future where every single child has access to quality education in the way that your children do and my children do. And that it is not at all based on the color of their skin, their family's educational outcomes, or where they live. When organizations and people who are centering students band together, I think anything is possible. I believe we are finally at a place that we're at a crossroads that feels extra important and at a moment unlike any other, and I'm just excited by that. The voice you just heard is Ola Whitney. She's the CEO of Reading Partners, a national nonprofit striving to increase childhood literacy. Ola and I both believe that education is the most fundamental answer to societal challenges. And we hope that this conversation inspires you to make the difference that you can make within or beyond your own community. One person can make a big difference, and Ola Whitney is leading by example. I know you'll enjoy hearing her story and her insights today. Welcome to Changing Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. This podcast was originally created to spotlight the leaders, alumni, and friends of the Cutco Vector Marketing community who are leveraging their positive influence to empower people all over the world to change their lives. Every few weeks, we go outside of the Cutco Vector sphere to bring you a guest who is teaching others how to have a more successful and fulfilling life, both personally and professionally. The special guests we bring to you here in episodes like today's are successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. The lessons they share are compelling, real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am honored and grateful today to have Adiola Whitney as my guest today and to be able to share her story and insights with all of you. She grew up in Columbus, Ohio, went to college at Oberlin College, and has spent much of her career in some form of education mixed in with public service. And education is a cause that is very near and dear to my heart. I believe it to be the primary solution to our challenges in the world. And I'm really looking forward to gaining some insights from Adiola on this topic today. She is the CEO of Reading Partners, which is a nationwide nonprofit that supports childhood literacy. I am on the board of the Silicon Valley chapter of Reading Partners, and I've really been looking forward to making this connection and having this conversation. So Ola, welcome to the podcast. Dan, thank you so much. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and excited to be with you and excited to be with your listeners. Thank you again. I'm just, I'm so honored that you Excellent. Yeah, great. Well, let's, uh, let's have our listeners get to know you a little bit. Why don't you give us a little bit about your personal background? Yeah, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio uh, to two Nigerian parents who came here for a better opportunity for their kids and for their own careers. At the age of 12, I learned a lot about social justice, unbeknownst to me, didn't know that that was even a word back then. But there was an incident 
that I observed while with my parents at a mall that forever changed my life. And I credit it a lot to why I do the work that I do professionally and why I give back and why service is so important to me. Can you summarize anything about what happened when when you were 12? Yes, I would love to. So in short, summer, August, in the, I think, early, late 80s, I was 12 years old going back to school shopping with my parents at the local mall in my neighborhood. And as we exited the mall, uh, we witnessed a Black woman being thrown to the ground who was visibly very pregnant. And now after having three children, I think she was likely in her last trimester, probably ninth month of pregnancy, being thrown to the ground. She was harassed because they thought that she had stolen something. And my father went to her defense. And while racial epithets were thrown his way, he stood his ground, saw the humanity in this woman, and did not leave until she received justice, until they let her go and realized she didn't steal anything. Mm. He then ended up putting something on the front page of the newspaper for which he was the city editor for, unbeknownst to the mall security officers and the police officers who were there. And the month after the NAACP, the Ohio chapter, ended up boycotting all of the, I think it was J.C. Penney's. It was either J.C. Penney's or Sears, can't quite recall, but all of them in the state of Ohio uh, for that next year. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was a big deal. And just the way that I felt in that moment and understanding and both not fully understanding, but watching my father go back to that woman's rescue meant so much to me. I mean, I think in ways that it had an impact on me and immeasurable impact on me in ways that I just would have never been able to describe, you know, as as a 12 year old in middle school. Mm. That's uh, that's amazing to hear. I think that a lot of our passions in life tend to come back to some particular experience that we had that was meaningful in a, in a certain way, that was memorable in a certain way, and that uh, led us to want to pursue certain causes or certain uh, you know, uh, different avenues in our life. So this led you into when you went to Oberlin, you majored in, you double majored in English and African-American studies. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Tell us about your Oberlin experience. And, and specifically, I'd love to hear like what lessons from your studies there are relevant in what you do today. Yeah. You know, I'll first say, Dan, when I, the first time I went to Oberlin, it was only a couple years after that incident. So maybe two and a half, three years after that, I visited, I believe I was a freshman in high school and I hated it. I was like, there's no way I'm going to the school. It's so small. The football team's not great. You know, I'm coming from Columbus, Buckeyes. The football team's not great. The basketball team isn't that great. The school is extra small. Why would I ever want to go here? And I think as I continued later, a few years later, and really took the idea of college seriously and began to tour schools and speak to other students and really think critically about what I wanted to do, understanding the rich history of Oberlin made complete sense for me to go there. So it's a liberal arts school. There's a history of the Underground Railroad and abolitionists and social activists. And there's a social justice component within the school. The African-American Studies Department was renowned, like just really well-known. And this idea of really being open-minded to different ideas and thoughts. Not everyone who went to Oberlin was very liberal and people thought differently and came from different walks of lives and being able to, and I'm sure you can find this on a lot of college campuses, but for me, Oberlin challenged me in ways to really think differently 
and helped me to create some paradigm shifts. So what I thought to be true, walking in the doors of Oberlin through my experiences and engaging with people that I would, would not have had the experience to do in high school, where my high school was predominantly Black. Everyone was from the same working class, lower middle class community. It just was so different than my experience at Oberlin. While it was only two and a half hours away, it was far. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was far in the beliefs and in our, our focus. The whole mission was that it takes one person to be able to change the world. And I so believe that. And I, I think I went to Oberlin with already this altruistic spirit, having tutored and bo- done a lot of volunteer uh, services. And I was part of this local nonprofit in high school where we would do outreach in our community and talk about the challenges of teen pregnancy and, you know, teen drug abuse and and addiction. And so I already knew, like I already had this altruistic spirit about me that certainly was formed by my parents and also influenced by work and volunteerism that I had an opportunity to participate in. But at Oberlin, I think I, I, I really understood social justice as a term, not as just something I had experienced way before, years before I ever knew what that term was, I understood the importance of activism. And like, I wasn't someone who every, you know, every week was out with a sign or a poster, but I did get to, you know, uh, participate in some you know, various forms of activism and things that I, that I believed a lot in, sit-ins and things like that. And then through my English major, I also learned that, I learned the true meaning of success and failure. And what I mean by that is like, in order to succeed, you must fail. You must fall on your ass. You, you have to in order to truly succeed. And I went into Oberlin thinking I was going to be a pre-med student, had taken AP classes in high school and did fairly well. And that was just kind of the thing that you did if you got great, got, got good grades. I was the student body president in my high school. So I came into Oberlin thinking, yeah, I'm going to go and do all of these things. I didn't run for any office while I was there. But I did have a few experiences my freshman year that were were game-changing for me. So I nearly failed biology. Actually, not nearly. I did fail. I got a D. And so Oberlin has this thing where you get, it's credit, no credit. So if you don't get, if you don't pass a class, it just shows no credit. And my father had some choice words for me and told me how quickly I'd be brought back to Columbus to go to community college if I didn't take this seriously and that I needed to figure out what I was going to do and who I wanted to be. There's a stereotype in this thought that Nigerians, like Nigerian kids, especially those who grew up in this country, have said like, you know, in, in a Nigerian household, there's like four or five careers you can be. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, get a PhD. Yeah, let's just call it four. And <laughs> I, was, I was doing none of those things. Right. And I thought I was going to be a doctor. And after literally failing biology, when I tried harder than I'd ever tried for it, like I I really studied and I stayed up and I went to extra classes and I got into groups and I engaged with the people who were smarter than me and who were clearly doing better. And I realized this isn't for me. And when I had to, I also had to ask myself the question, like, well, what is it that you want to do? And I don't think I fully formed, I want to be an executive leader of a nonprofit one day. I I didn't know that. I certainly didn't know that in college. What I did know is that I wanted to do something where I thought that I could play a role in changing the world for the better. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was taking this class. I can't remember the name of the class, 
but it was an African-American studies class, but focused on education. And he told me about it. And he was like, look, I'm taking this class. It's really cool. And you actually get to tutor in the community. And I was like, what? Like we get to tutor kids. And so I took that with him and we, we were placed at the same school tutoring, I think third or fourth grade math. And we loved it. I loved it so much. And getting to interact with the kids, getting to see that I was actually making a difference in helping them understand math was just, was like the best feeling in the world. And so that just led to more opportunities for me to volunteer. It also shifted some of the jobs I had. I first started working in the dining hall. It's like the worst job I've ever had in my life. Just the smell (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of the dishes and having, and I think it humbled me because some people don't have a choice. And this is the job that they do every single day. And they don't have a choice. And given the resource, the limited resources that they have, this is the job that they can get, right? And so, and I had a choice. I was really lucky and very privileged at that time and had an opportunity to work with an organization called Upward Bound. It's all over the country. It's college-based. It's funded federally. And it's a program for high school students to help them get into and succeed in college by exposing them to to college life as early as ninth grade. And so there's a summer component program, and then there's programs throughout the school year. And throughout the school year, there's tutoring that the staff there, part-time staff like me, college students offer. And so I got to be one of those college students who got to work there. So I traded in my apron really quickly. Uh, for the opportunity to go to not only Oberlin, the town, but also Elyria and Lorraine. Those are different towns in um, right outside of Oberlin uh, in, in Northeast Ohio. So I got an opportunity to do that. And again, it was like the more exposure I got, the more that I craved. And I was doing that in the, in, in the background, was learning all about the history of Black people in this country and making a connection to my own Nigerian ancestry and the fact that my parents got to come here on their own free will, but that I actually have ancestors, I have ancestors too, who were slaves. And just understanding that and then also beginning to understand the history of public education in this country and how systemic racism is embedded in so much of what has happened from real estate to education, you know, home buying a home, specifically what I mean, not real estate, but buying a home, especially after the depression, to education, the way that people are taught, how education looks so different in urban settings than it does in suburban settings. It was a lot, like I was really immersing myself in that while also learning a lot about public speaking through theater. So I acted a lot in high school. I was in a lot in many of the major plays in my high school. And I utilized that in college, both from the African American studies lens, but also just as an opportunity to really sharpen my public speaking. And it also just really built my confidence. And I'm like, if I can stand up and talk in front of 500 people, rehearse these lines, learn them. And then even when I forget them, not allow anybody in the audience to know that I can do anything. And then as I saw how well I both, how much I enjoyed the theater, African-American history, along with just engaging with so many of my classmates who are also focused um, in that major. I loved it. I also learned in college how to, how to ask, how to make an ask. I learned how to fundraise without knowing that that's what it was. I, 
wrote and and performed a play my senior year. That was like my senior project for my African-American studies major. And I had to raise money in order to put on the play. And I did. I've raised money for many different things. But again, not knowing that, I don't know that we called it fundraising. And if we did, that certainly wasn't on my resume when I graduated. And then given that my first job out of Oberlin was a, a role, a business development role, it was program management and meets business development. And I had to do a lot of selling and I loved it. And I realized I was really good at it. And, ha- and just the transferable skills between going into the dean's office and asking for money to put on something, to run something, to I was over, I oversaw my dorm to like, you know, run different activities there and how similar that was to convincing a parent to invest in their child's tutoring once I was at my first job at SCORE. Yeah. I love uh, uh, a lot of the things that you just said there. First off, one of the things you said that struck me was that when you got to Oberlin, you learned a lot of things that you, you know, uh, were contrary to what you thought previously. I think that anybody who is open-minded in life gets exposed to a lot of ideas that will fly in the face of what you might believe right now. And that open-mindedness to those ideas is sort of how we evolve as human beings. It's how that we learned the earth wasn't flat many, many years ago, right? Was that there was an open-mindedness to some possibility that was outside our own reality. And I think that that in and of itself is an important concept that everybody needs to have. It seems logical that most college students would have that when they're in college, but it feels like a lot of people lose that open-mindedness once they're in their 20s or 30 years old and they, they, they get stuck in a certain way of thinking. Yes. The world's always changing and yep. we all need to be constantly evolving in our beliefs. So I, I believe in the, the mantra that I've heard before is strong beliefs loosely held. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have convictions and strong beliefs, but we don't hold on to them so tightly that we aren't able to evolve as humans. And yep. you know, your, your path and evolution took a lot of, went through a lot of changes, it seems like, as you were going through your Oberlin experience. We learn a lot about life and people, but we also learn a lot about ourselves that was different than what we thought, right? Like you thought maybe you'd be a doctor and then your path went a different way, right? I thought I might major in like econ or finance and in college. And then I realized that like management and psychology and anything involving dealing with people was what I really liked and ended up getting into. And then the idea that, you know, you have to, you have to fail in order to succeed. I think that that's a concept that a lot of people have heard, but they may not fully understand why that's so relevant. And mm-hmm. one of the things I try to explain to people all the time is that if you're not failing with some level of frequency, then you are not anywhere near testing the outer limits of your capabilities. And that's so right. it is so important that we're always setting goals where we're not hitting every single goal all the time, but we're yep. learning from those failures and that helps us to elevate our success in the future. So Damn, I thought that was a, cool. Thank you. And that's a challenge, right, Dan? I think far too often, and I mean, I think about that even as a parent, that for, I have three boys, uh, seven, 14 and 19, and they're all completely different learners and just different personalities. The only similarity is their last name is Whitney and they're born to my husband and to me. But I think that it's just, it's so important for even young people to experience challenge. And what I mean is not someone else's definition of something that's challenging, but actually going through the practice and the exercise of being stuck mm-hmm. and having to learn a bit about resilience 
and how to come out of that. Yeah. I also love what you said about learning about speaking and learning about how to ask. Because Mm -hmm. in the company that I work with, we provide young students with a direct sales opportunity and we teach them all about presentation skills and connecting Mm -hmm. with people. And we provide them with speaking opportunities when they do well, where they can, you know, share and and, uh, teach others. And we also teach people how to ask, right? In sales, you have to be willing to ask for the sale. If you believe in what you're showing and what you're selling, it makes sense at the end to ask the customer if they would like to get it. And we teach people to get past that moment of fear to actually ask for what you want. And that's important, way more important in life than it is in selling, but obviously it's crucial in selling, but it's an, it's an important life skill as well. And it seems like you had that chance to also gain some experience in that area there while you were at Oberlin. Absolutely. Yes, nice. I did. So this, you referenced that you, your first job after college, was this with SCORE Educational right. Centers, your first job after college? Yes. And, and tell us about what you did there. And I'm fascinated by the goals and the strategies that SCORE has for what they do. (laughs) So they were a subsidiary of Kaplan, you know, and Kaplan is known for their test prep and they were a tutoring service, essentially Mm -hmm. uh, an after-school tutoring program. But, you know, and our competitors were Huntington and Sylvan and Kumon, other test prep, but also tutoring centers We were originally started in more affluent parts of, I think it was started in the Bay Area, but affluent parts of the Bay Area, like Silicon Valley, like Menlo Park and other suburbs. So it was a business management training program couched in education in the suburbs, oftentimes for very affluent families. So they could spend back in the 90s, 119 to as much as $150 a month to help their child get ahead in math or reading or language arts. I think those were the few subjects. It's cool to hear. My kids do Kumon mm-hmm. right now. Even my yep. four-year-old mm-hmm. is already in Kumon. So I can relate to this. And so, yep. so this is for, it's not for little kids, right? This is for older students. It was for kids as young as four. Oh, okay. My first member was, was a brother-sister duo uh, four and six or four and seven. It was pre-K up to maybe eighth grade. I think we had a couple of high school students, but we trended towards younger. Got it. Got it. So your passion for education was born out of tutoring while you were at Oberlin and then you participated in Upward Bound. And then this was your first job after college. So education was infused into what you wanted to do in your life right here from, from these beginnings, right? Yes. Yes. It just was interesting, Dan, because the whole goal at score was like, we need to sign kids up and what we do is great. And it's different. Our differentiator from us versus the Kumans of the world or uh, Sylvan and other places, everything was on the computer. And and this was back in the late nineties. And It was about fun. So at the end of the session, at the end of the 50 minute session, kids got to take basketball shots. They got to earn, there was like this little incentive program where they got to earn gifts. And back then Pokemon cards were just, I mean, they're so popular. My seven-year-old loves them now, but they were really, this like when they first ever came out. So my job was to ensure that children were having a good time and they were learning, but it was also to sell. And we would do these things called sidewalk pools, P-U-L-L-S. And we, because we were always 
in like a really desirable, beautiful downtown area, you know, small town, downtown area across from the Williams Sonoma or next to like J. Crew or, or like the local hardware store, we'd get a lot of foot traffic and we'd go outside and kids would see basketball, a basketball hoop and different prizes they could win. So it kind of looked a little bit like Chuck E. Cheese, but there were computers and folks were confused. So they always stop. And then our job was to engage the kids, get them to come inside to try out our program. And then during that time, talk to their parents. And by the time kids were done, they were excited and smiling. And so, but that's what it was. It was selling. And we looked at our conversion rates of how frequently we could pull people from the sidewalk inside, how frequently we could convert them on their first visit, their second visit, their third visit. And when we spoke to them on the phone, what our appointment rate was what that conversion rate was, how many people signed up, what the show rate was. Like there was all of these terms. I learned a lot about consultative selling back then. That, like, that is what we use. There was like a four-step process back then. So what I'll say is that I learned so much about business, so much mm-hmm. about managing others. I was 22, out of college. I worked there for eight years. I was promoted nine times in those eight years. And oftentimes the only person as I got bigger and bigger roles, oftentimes the only person without a master's degree, I'm always the only Black person, and oftentimes the only person of color, many times the only woman. It's very interesting. So your career progressed from there. You eventually got to reading partners for your first stint uh, around 2013, right? Yes, yes. It was 2013, yep. uh, Was there anything in between score and reading partners that you'd want to uh, that you want to highlight? My first in a nonprofit was at Playworks and Playworks is based in the Bay Area um, in Oakland is where it started. I was excited for the entrepreneurial part of the of the role um, and it was an opportunity. And I think the altruism and just what really motivates me and inspires me and in being able to work in a community. I think a lot of that pulled at me and the entrepreneurial part of score that I love so much, but now bringing that into the nonprofit space and in a place like Newark, New Jersey, and then later also New York City and being the first ever executive director for New Jersey and then also making a decision to open up in New York. It was just a big deal. And it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. And I learned so much about social entrepreneurship and just really doing work that's mission critical or what at least that felt very mission critical to me and really understanding things like the core values of an organization and why those are so important and really getting to put some of the business acumen that I developed that score into place, but at a nonprofit and doing it through fundraising and loving yeah. it and yeah. you know, like just absolutely loving it. So um, after spending about four years there and growing the re- growing, you know, the little small office that we were in in Newark, where we were, where we initially started impacting, I think it was maybe 2,500 kids and being able to grow to nearly 10,000 kids in about four different school districts in both New York and, and then in uh, New York City Department of Ed. Truly amazing. Just truly amazing to see our impact as a team. Nice. So that was your first stint in nonprofit. And then this led you into your first time working at Reading Partners in 2013, right? Yes. So, yep, that's right. So someone, a recruiter, nonprofit, like headhunter, but really more recruiter, uh, reached out to me and told me about the opportunity at Reading Partners. I had never heard of Reading Partners before that, but the opportunity was to 
manage, coach, develop, support executive directors. And after being a regional executive director in an organization, I understood the importance of that person above them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I love Playworks, but I'm not continuing to, like, there's not a role above me that I was really excited about at that time. And uh, in 2013, my eldest son, not my eldest son, my son, who's now 14, was, I believe, a first grader then. He was either six or seven. And he was really struggling with reading. He hated it. He hated to read. He hated to be read to. He didn't like to write his name. And I poured all of my free time and some of my professional work time into trying to figure out with his teachers and his school what resources we could provide him to ensure that his reading improved. And I think about how much time I had to take off of work And I started volunteering in his class. I had a full-time job. So, but I took time off to volunteer in his class. I would meet with his, with his teacher, the child studies team and the principal, like multiple times. We probably had a total of five meetings over a three month span of time. And then we also got him a tutor. And I just think about the investment my husband and I made and not just financially, but also time. And the more that I learned about reading partners, the more that I recognized this is exactly where I belong. Mm-hmm. The children we were serving at the time at Reading Partners were the same age as Jahi. And in fact, many of the children looked very similar to him, you know, ethnically, race-wise. They were also little black and brown children. And the biggest difference was that my husband and I could make a decision to take time off of work and we could afford to take time off of work and we could pay for a tutor to support him. And I could go into the school and talk to the teacher and know, and I knew what questions I needed to ask. So I got it right in a way that I don't think that that knowledge is as accessible to all of the families that we serve. And I think right. the and- difference was Privilege. Like I had resources. I was in a different zip code. I went to Oberlin College. I had all of that. I had already had about at that time an 11, 12 year career or longer than that, maybe close to 15 year, 14, 15 year career in education that I had the agency that I needed to make change for my son and, yeah. and put any financial resources towards it to ensure that he became a better reader. And English, English was your first language. And, you know, you That's think about the, a lot of the kids that are reading partners serves here in Silicon Valley. Yep. That's not true. That's the vast right. majority of them, Spanish is their first language and their, right. their parents speak primarily Spanish or only Spanish. And so they can't help them as well as you or I could, you know, help our kids. So there, there's just such a need. Like I can remember Ola, you know, as I was being recruited to get into reading partners, one of the guys that was uh, on the board was talking about the ratio of kids in the middle and lower income areas of our of our community that are reading at the proper reading level by third grade. And it was like 30%. It's like mm-hmm. 70% are not reading mm-hmm. at the level they're supposed to be reading at. And if kids aren't reading at the right level by third grade, it stops becoming cool for them to learn and it becomes a downward spiral and they're sunk. Another graphic or a stat that I heard from one of the guys that was recruiting me for reading partners was that the state of California models the need for prison beds 15 years in the future by looking at today's third grade reading rate. That's how they model. Yeah, it's, it is. It is. It's crazy. 
And I'm often reminded of a quote, Ola, that stands out to me from the great philosopher Janet Jackson, Mm -hmm. who began one of her songs by saying, we are in a race between education and catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And that quote always just has resonated for me. And I just feel like, like, you know, like you said, this is where I need to be. Like, I've always felt like this is where many of us need to be exerting our influence and putting some of our resources is like, let's help all the little kids to be able to read and to be able to get a good start education wise, because if we can just get people to be well educated and, you know, have good skills in these areas, like it opens up the doors that otherwise would not be opened. That's right. That's absolutely right. It is game changing to say the least. Yeah. So you were you were in Reading Partners the first time for three years. You were managing yeah. executive directors uh, all across managing, the different markets? That's right. I was first managing about half of them. And then I went away on maternity leave for a few months. And during my leave, my manager at the time, the CEO, Michael Lombardo, I think he may have flown out to New York and asked, would I be willing to take on the chief regional operating officer role. And that's where I'd be managing other VPs who manage executive directors. And I said, of course, yes. And so I did that and I loved it. And I had to travel a lot in that role. And my son was just a baby at the time. And he and my mom would be in tow wherever I went for about a year, a little bit longer. And I just realized how hard that was on them and on me and needed to find a role that was a little more centered or closer to home. So I'm, on, I'm in the New York, New Jersey metro area, but something that could still mean that I need to travel, but not nearly to the extent that I was traveling for reading partners. Got it. Yeah. So this took you to uh, Hive and iMentor, right? For uh, the next few years. Tell us As a little I bit was- about those. Yeah. So as I was deciding my exit strategy for reading partners, I started working with a friend, a really good friend of mine who was also an executive director. She at the time, she previously had been the executive director for Playworks Baltimore, and I was the executive director for Playworks Newark in New York. And we would just always, we would jokingly talk about how we needed to start something way back. I mean, this was like in way before 2016, but this was probably 2011, 12. And we would just say, we just, we need to become consultants. Like we should just do it. And so one day she called me up and she said, Hey, what if we do it? And I said, do what? And she was like, what if we start a consulting firm? So her sister was, that's what she did professionally. She worked for a professional consulting firm and led uh, trainings and workshops on leadership and management. And that was what I felt like was my special sauce at the time. I had already like amassed like this resume where I had managed as many as 100 people indirectly, 200, you know, 100, 150 people had some really big teams, even direct, even my direct reports. And I was like, I think I know a thing or two about this. Now I don't have an MBA, but I've read enough Harvard Business Review articles. I've read things then tried them and then they worked. And then I've trained other people to do it. And then it worked. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I have something here. So we took about, I want to say six to eight months, creating a business plan, meeting like every other month. So I was doing all of that while also still working at Reading Partners and also interviewing for what would be my next job, which was iMentor. 
Got it. And my initial plan was I'm going to be at iMentor for two years. And I'm ultimately going, I'm going to do it for two years while also doing like kind of moonlighting, doing this consulting work. And then after two years, I'm going to do the consulting work full time. So Hive was your, Hive was your consultancy startup that you, you did with your, your friend yep. and the, the mission there, the goal there was to help organizations move missions forward faster. That's, That's right. what you were consulting people to do. And you had, as you said, all this real life experience, forget the MBA, you had the real life experience doing exactly that. And you were able to share some of the insights that you had gained with others um, yeah. And then meanwhile, you went to iMentor, you, you left Reading Partners, you went to iMentor as your next job. And what were you doing with iMentor? I was in a very similar role to the one at Reading Partners. It was almost the exact same title. So I was the chief regional officer, their first ever chief regional officer. iMentor is an organization focused on college access for high school students, and they help support students get into and through college through mobilizing community volunteers, sound familiar? But instead of tutors, mentors, and instead of elementary school, high school. Okay. So did that, loved it so much and told the CEO at the time. So after I got the job offer and I accepted, I said, well, you know, it's contingent just upon this. I can be here for two years. I'm starting another business and I really want to devote my time and energy to that two years from now. Like that's what I'm going to be doing, but just know I'll be taking days off. I'll be, you know, I'm going to do my work while, while I'm here, but in my free time, I'm doing this other thing. And he said, okay, no problem. As long as you can create a succession plan, we're fine. And after doing this for a year, year and a half, two things happened. I just realized it was too much. There's no way that I could do the work really well for this national nonprofit. And really devote the time that I needed to, to this fourth baby of mine, this business with two of my friends. Yeah. And I made the decision and I, and I, so I thought about where the energy, like, what did I enjoy doing most? And it wasn't Hive. It was, I mentor. So you stayed for four and a half years. Correct. Right. And then you yeah. never ended up pursuing your consultancy with Hive, but instead you got recruited back to Reading partners. That's right. So I did pursue the consultancy for some time. And then I sold the business. I sold my portion of the business back to them. And I still talk to them and they're doing, Hive still exists and they're doing great work. But yeah, so in January, 2020, before we really knew what COVID was, I was in Asia. I was in Indonesia with my husband on a once in a lifetime trip to Bali. And the experience that I had in Bali made me just remember how how lucky I am, how much privilege I have and that my husband has and our family has, and that it is, I am supposed to do, I'm ultimately supposed to do more than what I'm doing right now. Meaning, and not, I need to work harder or longer hours, but that that it was the altruistic spirit of me was at play again. And I said, there's more that I have to offer. I, I really want to be at the helm of an organization. And I had a great CEO that I mentored to look at and see what he did. And he mentored me and gave me a lot of opportunities that were completely outside of my job description. But I would just say, hey, I really want to go to this thing. I'd really like to do this. And he allowed me to. As a result, I had dinner with Beyonce and 20 other 
potential funders of our organization in a small gathering a couple years back. That would have never happened had I not raised my hand and said, so I know you're going out and you're fundraising, but given that you look a lot like the funders, don't you want to have some represent some diverse representation? Isn't it important for maybe my voice to be there, not only as a woman of color, but the person overseeing all of the regions? I can speak from that lens. Right. And he agreed. And he started bringing me to fundraising events. Anyway, so I say all of that to say, I love the work there, but in January of 2020, I knew I wanted to be a CEO. I flew back home, had a conversation with Mike and said, I'm going to be leaving in the next year. It's time for me to pursue being a CEO. You've had me here. I've now been here almost four years and I thought I was only going to be here for two. I've loved this ride. And, you know, I want to be really thoughtful about my exit, but if you're not leaving right now, then I need to go find something else. And at the time he wasn't. So I began to explore other opportunities and then COVID hit. And then I said, oh, just kidding. I'm not not going anywhere. I didn't say that to him, (laughs) but I said it, I said it to myself. I said, Oh, oh, what were you? That's so risky. Why why would you, why would you ever do that? Why would you look for a job in the middle of a pandemic? (laughs) So for about three weeks, I just put it in the back of my head and really focused on our mission and trying to work with um, my colleagues to figure out how we could best support students virtually. And then the racial reckoning. And I don't mean then, but I mean, The things that had been happening to black and brown, mainly young people, but also uh, a lot of men wasn't new, right? But it was more pervasive and it was more in our face because everyone was still and everyone saw George Floyd and everybody understood who Breonna Taylor was Mm -hmm. and the list goes on and uh, Ahmaud Aubrey and Tamir Rice and the list goes on and on and on. And so... Then by the by late spring, early summer, you know, just watching many organizations and for-profit companies and people talk about the importance of racial equity, state confidently that Black Lives Mattered, talk about, you know, inequity in this country, just all of the all of the things that were happening at the time and put statements up that sometimes felt a little performative, if I'm just being honest, felt a little performative to me. Mm-hmm. And just watching how different organizations put their money where their mouth was. And, you know, and, and then I just saw this rise of leaders, some, some leaders exiting organizations and other leaders coming in, leaders who look like me. And I said, wait, what was I thinking? Yes, this is my time. This is absolutely my time to be at the helm of an organization representing and advocating for children who look like Jahi, Sai, and Taj. Yeah. Um, but have less resources if this is ever a time. So I soon, I, I quickly learned that Reading Partners was looking for a new CEO. And I had a few conversations, informal conversations with some of the leaders there and thought, oh, I need to really throw my hat in the ring. Like I, I could come back and I could actually do it and not have to move to the Bay Area and just travel there once it's safe to do so. But I think I could do it. So I looked at other organizations too and got a, a couple other offers, but Reading Partners was absolutely where I needed to be at the time. And it was this an exciting moment watching what was happening in the world of education, watching and you know, just watching my kids, my especially my seven-year-old, who was, I think, six at the time, similar to the age of your daughter, watching them figure out how to learn online on a computer where they couldn't actually be in person with their, with their with their with their classmates and their teacher was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And, felt like a moment where reading partners was ready for 
um, to be part of Reading Partners in this last year, I've been here for almost exactly a year, has just been unlike any experience ever. Yeah. Um, What I've learned from the leaders in this organization, how they have unequivocally shared the importance of educational equity. And um, it just felt like this was my time and this was our time as an organization to do some really important, something really important for kids and families who needed it most. Yeah. What are you most excited about for the future vision of Reading Partners? I am most excited, Dan, about our pivot. So I believe the next three years of Reading Partners is going to look differently than the last 22 years. And the last 22 years have been amazing, but the world looks different. Mm -hmm. And if we're not nimble, agile, somewhat innovative, we're going to be left out in the dust. And there will be many other great organizations that exist really helping to close the gap, really helping to you know, bridge literacy and educational equity. So I don't think it's about us. It's about students and it's about communities. But now is the time. We learned so much during COVID about the notion of community and really reimagining and redefining what community means and the ecosystem that's built in each and every community that we're in that are all focused on promoting the well-being, health, safety, education of students that we serve. And that in order for us to truly grow, it's not as easy. It's not as simple as it's just opening up another region. We've done that. Right. We've been as big as 14. We actually had to close two of them. So to not go down that rabbit hole again, we want to invest in the 12 regions that we're in and really deepen our impact there, as well as find ways to partner in new communities with nonprofits that already exist Mm -hmm. and that are looking to help build help recover the learning loss that happened to everybody during COVID, but especially the children that we serve. Yeah. To be clear, the learning loss that happened in 2020 was was greatly exacerbated in middle and lower income type of communities, the kind of communities that that reading partners serves largely. And you know, I think about like my kids, it was a challenge the uh the Zoom year, but it wasn't that bad. They got most of what they needed to get still. And I just think that for a lot of people though, like, you know, my kids had laptops that they could use for their, for their classes. We had plenty of resources to be able to help them with additional uh, educational opportunities if we needed to, but not everybody had that. And you said, you you talked about the pivot also, Ola, that, um, you know, to be clear for anybody listening, reading partners model has been a one-on-one in-person tutoring model where the volunteer tutor goes to the schools, um, the schools that are signed up to participate with that local reading partners chapter, the tutor goes to the school and sits down with a kid for one hour. Typically it's an hour a week commitment, but they sit down with them in person and they help them with their reading, right? And and they also have that connection and that, uh, you know, additional presence of a you know, caring adult in their life. And there's a lot of good things that come out of it, but it's been largely in person until the pandemic. And then there was a pivot to being able to do it more virtually, which extends the reach for potential tutors. I think about like college students that are on their college campus and don't have a car and can't, couldn't get out to a school, but they could easily volunteer to tutor a kid from the community. 
they can even extend the reach outside of local communities for somebody who would be passionate about tutoring kids and maybe doesn't live where our reading partners um, chapter exists. Exactly. So, so this, this is the pivot that's occurring is that more of the tutoring is happening or all of the tutoring is happening through a virtual setting instead of the in-person at the school setting that we used to do. And I would say we are doing some of the in-person, uh, not in the state of California, but in a couple other locations, a small percentage of the tutoring is actually in person. And I believe that as the world opens, continues to open up and kids can safely be in person with adults, we can see more of that. So I I don't think our in-person or what I call our bricks and mortar program where there's a reading center in schools where tutors physically come to, that's not going anywhere. We will continue Mm -hmm. to have that. And I think we'll continue to see more students being tutored that way as the vaccination rates increase, I'm sure. And just as it's as it's safer and as COVID becomes a thing of the past, I'm knocking on wood five times. But as that happens, that is the hope. And you're absolutely correct. All of the examples that you shared for how we could really leverage this online tutoring platform, Reading Partners Connects, to bring a student from one community and a tutor from a different community together is our hope for the future. And our hope for the future is also not only continuing to partner with school communities where principals are the ones who enter into the partnership with us along with their staff and the families of the students we're serving, but also what would it look like for us to extend that to nonprofits and go to a nonprofit organization that pre-exists as an after-school program and needs a literacy program to support students' reading journey. Can we be that program? I think the answer is yes. Cool, cool. I, I love to hear the hybrid vision where there's the in-person, but there's also the ability to have the virtual tutoring happen. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense and that's great. Mm-hmm. What is your vision for you know the, the children that come through Reading Partners program? They start out, they're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe third grade. They're behind by six months to two years on their reading. We help them get caught up? And then what's yep. what's the future hold for them? Our children in the schools that we serve are resilient. They're amazing, right? And so our job is only playing a small piece, playing a small piece in what will ultimately ensure that they're reaching their full potential. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I think teachers are doing everything that they can do. I think families are doing everything that they can do. And our job is to understand the role that we play and to do this work with our communities, not to them or for them. So for the students, I want them to be, I want them to believe in themselves and their resilience um, and have confidence and enjoy reading partners. So it's not just, it's not simply about the literacy piece, but there's also a social and emotional component. And I think there has to be for the best educators, they're able to kind of bring the two together, the academics, the confidence. I like to imagine a future where every single child has access to quality education in the way that your children do and my children do. Yep. And that it is not at all based on the color of their skin, their family's educational outcomes, or anything else, or where they live, right? And I think when organizations and people who are centering students band together, I think anything is possible. I truly, truly believe that. And so I believe Reading Partners is, and we believe that for the last 22 years. That's not different. 
I believe we are finally at a place that we're at a crossroads that feels extra important and at a moment unlike any other. And I'm just excited by that. And I'm excited to help kids on their journey to do our small part. I love the idea of connecting reading partners with other nonprofits that can Mm -hmm. sort of take the ball and run with it as kids are growing beyond the ages that reading partners serves. I think that Mm -hmm. we have to be able to help these kids connect the dots between what they're you know learning and gaining in in first second third grade to you know being a little bit older to high school and then on upwards to get them to that point where when they are you know are out into the job market whether it's after high school or whether it's after college that they've got the skills to be able to compete and to be able to succeed and the mindset to be able to compete and succeed and um, if we can just put people in that position then when they have kids their kids are going to grow up a lot more like you know that you and I did and uh, and like our kids are and they're going to have more opportunities and so anyway it's a great process that we're all engaged in to me that's why i feel like it just makes sense for anybody who's listening to think about how could i contribute to this how could i contribute to furthering education in my community whether it be digging in with you know little kids like reading partners does or or digging in at older ages in the cycle but what could be an avenue where anybody who's listening could help in this process and help further the educational advancement of children that are uh, living around us in our communities. There are so many great organizations in this country where people can volunteer. And I think we're all different and we're all inspired and motivated by different things. But if you want to make a difference in the life of a child, and and I'd argue in your life too, because I I do think it's it's life-altering for the volunteer. I think that uh, volunteers get out of this more than sometimes we talk about because of the work that they're doing, right? And that they're actually seeing the measurable impact. They're watching a child go from not knowing how to sound out letters to reading sentences to then reading a paragraph and a page and then a chapter. Mm -hmm. And if there's, I, I don't know what's more gratifying. So Um, I think if people want to volunteer, we ask that they donate an hour of their time. And essentially, we start as young as high school students. And that is, it's easier for our high school students to tutor if we're in person. Online, I believe you have to be about 18 years old. And we're we're trying to see if we could change that. But if anyone has an hour of time during the morning, afternoon, before three o'clock, they can still tutor online. They can go to www.readingpartners.org and tutor, sign up to become a volunteer tutor. And then also we're a nonprofit. And in order to realize, you know, this vision that I, I shared earlier, it takes money and any size donation matters. It, it really does. And whether it's $10 that someone decides to give on an ongoing monthly or bi-monthly basis or $10,000, I mean, all of that helps. So again, they can go on our website. That money can be donated directly to one of our regions. If you're in a region, if you're not in one of uh, the areas where we work, but you still believe in our mission and want to make a difference, you can you can offer to give a donation to any of our actual locations or to us at a national level that will just support the work that we're doing in regions. Yeah. Great. So anybody who's listening can uh, can consider being a Reading Partners volunteer. 
And then also, of course, donating to the cause. And, it, and if it's not reading partners, everyone, whatever cause is pa- you're passionate that's about, right. that's where we would like to see everybody uh, engage in some form of service to our communities, whether it's reading partners or elsewhere. Ola, outside of literacy, like if you had a magic wand, you could, uh, you know, fix the world. What would be the challenge that you would love to see addressed? I would probably focus on hunger. I think the idea that people don't have access to food in this country and around the world is just, that's difficult, right? It just, it is so, I would say hunger. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much food that goes to waste. I don't know the percentages. I'm not an expert, have never worked in this field in food access, but there's so much food that goes away just in this country alone. And just imagining that there are families that go without, that eat one meal a day and sometimes less. That's what my magic wand, that's what I would do. Yeah. Boy, there's so many, so many ways we could answer that question because there are so many challenges. And to me, as I referenced earlier, education is the one linchpin that can help to mitigate all of the other challenges. Because if somebody goes through and has the kind of education you had or I had or that our kids will have had by the time they're 25, if anybody just goes through that process and just becomes well-educated, they're in a position to be able to succeed. It's not a guarantee, but they're in a position to be able to succeed. And it doesn't matter what their parents' background was, if we can just educate each individual child to the best of our ability up to that, you know, into their twenties, we're giving them a chance. We're giving them a chance. And that's, uh, if we could just do that for everybody, it would, the world would be a much better place. And that's, uh, that's kind of how I view things. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I had to pull up the, the actual quote from Oberlin. It is think one person can change the world question mark. So do we. Well, we share that belief, Ola, and uh, I'm grateful to have been able to get to know more about you here today and share your story and your insights with the listeners and be able to tell them a little bit about Reading Partners as well. So thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Dan, thank you. This has been so much fun. Thank you for inviting me to this. And also thank you so much to your service in our Reading Partners Silicon Valley region. Just thanks for all you do for our students. Awesome. Appreciate you. All right. That was Ola Whitney, everyone. I hope you enjoyed getting to know her and hearing her story and her insights. I loved just hearing about the arc of her life growing up as the child of Nigerian immigrants in Ohio and then making it to Oberlin College, which uh, obviously is a challenging school to be able to get into and, and excel at did well, really had a a wide range of experiences while at Oberlin that taught her about herself and about the world. And then developing that passion for education and merging it with a passion for service. Just gets me thinking about all of the ways that anybody listening can also find ways of serving in their communities or even outside their communities serving the world. We talked afterwards, Ola and I did, after we stopped recording, about Nigerian culture because Nigerians have a reputation for excellence educationally and otherwise. It is one of, if not the most highly educated immigrant nationality in the United States. 
Nigerians are orders of magnitude more likely to attend top-tier colleges and to excel professionally. There's a culture of being the best at what you do that is ingrained from a young age. And when I think about how we can impart that culture on others, reading is one of the key ways because when a child can read and excels at reading, they know they can learn anything. And if they know they can learn anything, then they can become anything and enables them to have that high self-image, that vision for themselves, and that motivation to do what it takes to put themselves in a great position in life. And so supporting the cause of reading, supporting the cause of childhood literacy, to me is a very important thing that anybody can do. Regardless of where you are, you can support Reading Partners by donating. You can go to readingpartners.org. Just click on the donate button. If you got some value today but from listening to Ola, uh, give Reading Partners a few bucks and help them with their cause. They're developing an online tutoring system that will enable people outside of the 12 metros they serve to participate. So feel free to look into that or to ask me about that. And I might be able to help connect you. But if you are in any of the places Reading Partners serves, which they serve the Silicon Valley, as well as the San Francisco, Oakland part of the Bay Area, they serve Los Angeles, they serve Seattle, they serve Denver, they serve Tulsa, Dallas, they serve in South Carolina, they serve in Minneapolis, they serve in Washington, D.C., as well as Baltimore, and also the New York City metro area. If you're in or around any of these metros, you could be involved in tutoring. And again, you can do this in person if you like, you can do this online if you like, you can help a little kid one hour a week to be able to learn and grow and you can connect with that kid and be a positive influence in that kid's life and help impact them in a great way. As Ola and I both shared, we are all just one individual and no one of us is going to make all the difference in the world, but we can all make a difference in the world. And if all of us make a difference in the world, then collectively, we can make all the difference. Let's do our part to help make the world a better place. Hope you enjoyed getting to know Ola Whitney today. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.